Of all the things that I do, climbing inside volcanoes and going into crazy caves and driving into the eye of hurricanes, climbing on icebergs is probably one of the most dangerous. It can literally just bust into pieces while you're on top of it. I've seen it in Greenland where you have an iceberg sort of collapse in on itself and pieces go flying for dozens of meters. That's George Karunas, storm chaser, adventure traveler, RCGS explorer in residence. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. Before we get to our guest, a reminder that for just $28.50 a year, you can get a subscription to the award-winning Canadian Geographic magazine. This will get you six home-delivered print issues of the magazine and full digital access. For over 90 years, Canadian Geographic has been bringing you unique, independent Canadian reporting, photography, and maps focused on this incredible nation of ours. You can sign up at canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. Believe me, you'll be happy that you did. So George Karunas is an old friend of this podcast. Definitely go back and check out his 2019 interview for the story of how this RCGS fellow became a world-leading storm chaser, broadcaster, adventure traveler, doing everything from chasing tornadoes, jumping into volcanoes, surviving epic hurricanes and weather events, exploring those moments on our planet when nature is at its most extreme, and then sharing what he's learned from that. Today with George, we're going to head off on some new adventures, including climbing icebergs in the North Atlantic off of Newfoundland, and descending into Africa's most active volcano in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And along the way, George shares some amazing tips for young explorers on how he made these expeditions come together. George Karunas, welcome to the Explore Podcast. Welcome back to the Explore Podcast. Yes, thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's good to have you back. You were one of our very first interviews back in 2019, and uh, it was an action-packed episode. So, um, yeah, no, it's always good to have you back, and I'm sorry it's taken this long, because uh, certainly there's there's been a pandemic in the middle of all that, which is up in various ways. Yes. Yeah. So since you asked, uh, since we last talked, I think you've spent some time climbing icebergs off uh, ice, Iceberg Alley in uh, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is one of my favorite places in Canada. Nice. It really is. The people are so friendly. The you've got, of course, all the shoreline. It's just this wonderfully welcoming place. Mm-hmm. And every year, you get hundreds and hundreds of icebergs that drift down past the coast of Newfoundland. And it takes them about two years from when they break off their glaciers in Greenland and in places like Ilulasat and other other places along the uh, west coast of Greenland. And these icebergs, they drift down, they get Mm -hmm. locked in the Canadian sea ice over winter, and then eventually they find their way down along the coast of Labrador, off the coast of the Rock, Newfoundland. And then eventually they go out to the Atlantic. And this is... An iceberg graveyard. Literally, this is where icebergs go to die. But in their final days, they sort of wave to the people of Newfoundland as they head off towards their, on their funerary procession, if you will. And there are these monstrous abstract sculptures of ice that are the size of apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. And I've gone out there twice now, once when we were filming the Angry Planet TV series, and then once again for an Australian television crew 
and they wanted me to track the the position of one of these icebergs over a series of days to see how how they're moving through the currents. Right. And so my task was to go in a zodiac <laughs> with the a couple of good friends of mine who are who are RCGS fellows. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, Rick Stanley over at uh, mm-hmm. Ocean Quest. And so we would go out in a Zodiac and I would have my ice climbing gear, dry suit, personal flotation device. Um, I've got a little scuba regulator in case the iceberg mm-hmm. rolls and I get trapped under the water. And I would literally step off the Zodiac. And the first time I actually punctured a hole in the Zodiac with my crampons. Oops. Right away. Yeah. yeah. One of those things you don't really think about inflatable boats and crampons. Yeah. They don't go well together. <laughs> no. And so I was able to climb up onto these icebergs and go up to the top and use an ice screw to plant a satellite tracking beacon. But these things are of all the things that I do climbing inside volcanoes and going into crazy caves and driving into the eye of hurricanes climbing on icebergs is probably one of the most dangerous and i really oh, really cannot recommend it um <laughs> don't do this don't at, try this at, at home, home. Yeah, well, the first time i did it was in iceland quite quite a few years ago in, mm-hmm. uh, in a glacial lagoon in iceland but yeah. i wanted to climb the big boys off the east coast of right of, uh, which are like apartment buildings they're gigantic yeah. there's a canadian ice climber will gad he's one of the best if not the best ice climber in the world and he's the first person that i ever saw do this Mm-hmm. He's climbed uh, Niagara Falls at one point when it was frozen during a, a wicked oh, wow. uh, cold snap. He's climbed the, the the glacier at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. This guy's incredible. So he was an influence on me for doing this particular thing. And, and so I've done it numerous times now. And the trick is, of course, it's a dynamic, gigantic piece of ice that weighs hundreds of tons, thousands of tons probably. And the idea is, you want to spend as little time as possible on the iceberg and you want to find one that's going to be stable, preferably where it's grounded out, like at low tide where it's on the bottom. It's not going to flip if it's on the bottom. Right. Uh, but of course the tides are constantly changing. The weather conditions are changing. It's, it's constantly melting while you're on mm-hmm. it and it can crack and it can split, split and it can literally just bust into pieces while you're on top of it. And, uh, just oh. getting close to an iceberg is a very dangerous thing if if you're in a boat because an iceberg can tip to the left. Yeah. And even if you're on the right side of the iceberg, you've got 90% of it below the water. That 90% is now going to come up underneath you mm-hmm. and smash your boat to pieces. Wow. Right? So, yeah, it it is extraordinarily dangerous. But uh but it's it's so they're so amazing. They're so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, no, and at that point in their journey, too. I mean, that's this is where they kind of go to die, isn't it? Well, literally, <laughs> really, yeah. You're catching and it at the end. We're right? talking, literally, the current drags them out to where the Titanic struck the iceberg back so many years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it's literally one of these bergs that came down Iceberg Alley off the coast of Newfoundland and then drifted out to the Atlantic. That iceberg that sunk the Titanic was literally in its death throes. And so you're putting tracking devices on just to catch those last few weeks of, of the life of that iceberg? Well, the, the experiment didn't last that long, unfortunately, because these mm-hmm. things are breaking apart and such. And so we had uh, a couple of beacons last a few days, mm-hmm. and that was it. And one of the bergs that I was on the last time I did this 
we had gone out. I had a television crew with me. I'm on the iceberg. I've got, there's a, a drone flying overhead. The weather was perfect. The iceberg was yeah. great. Easy to climb, not too steep. And I get off. Everyone's happy. We go back ashore just to have lunch. And we look out and I notice I could see the berg from where we were having lunch. It had flipped less than an hour and a half after I'd stepped off of it. No way. Yeah. Wow. Those things can literally explode almost. Right? I've seen it in Greenland where you have an iceberg sort of collapse in on itself and pieces go flying for dozens of meters. And wow. you think about ice and how heavy it is, but you don't really understand how dense iceberg ice is because mm-hmm. all the air has been squeezed out of it while mm-hmm. it was in its glacial state up on the ice cap of Greenland. So yeah. it's very thick, very dense, heavy, heavy ice that is more like concrete really do we know are there more icebergs now because of global warming or do we have a sense of how that might be changing faster moving glaciers produce more icebergs it's really it's really that simple and as you have glaciers melting especially on the top they form what's called a moulin and they're Mm -hmm. these tunnels these vertical tunnels where you get meltwater on the surface of the glacier And that meltwater bores a hole all the way down to the bottom of the glacier and lubricates the bottom of the glacier and actually causes the glaciers to speed up. So so melting at the top causes more speed, if you will, less friction at the bottom of the glacier. One of the expeditions I really want to do, which I haven't had the opportunity to do yet, Mm -hmm. is to go up to either the Canadian Arctic or uh, the Columbia Icefield or Greenland and rappel down inside one of these moulins, go as deep as humanly possible into the heart of one of these glaciers. That's been on my expedition bucket list for a very long time. God love you. <laughs> that sounds insane, I have to say. But yes, like that would be fa- it would be amazing television. I would sure. I would love to be able to touch bedrock underneath one of these glaciers and access it from the top and go all the way down. That that is one of my bucket list items for sure. That's cool. Well, these things are now becoming possible again, post-pandemic, where this is all opening up. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can come join me. Vol- <laughs> well, let's talk. I don't, I don't know if I'll go down. <laughs> I'll, definitely, I'll definitely document, though. <laughs> I would love that. No, seriously. We, I would love to do something, anything with you out in the field. I, that, I would happily bring my, my recorder along with me. Um, uh, but volcanoes is the other thing that you are pretty famous for. Um, and I don't, we didn't get to this in our last conversation, but you spent time uh, in Virunga National Park in one of the most active volcanoes, like probably the most active volcano in Africa, right? Um, I spent some time there, not at the volcano, but covering more like conflict and stuff. It's, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the world, but um, it's got a raging volcano and a sort of a low, slow burn war that's been going on for 20 years there. So what was your time like there? Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times now. Uh, East, mm-hmm. Eastern Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, right near yep. the border of Rwanda. So yep. I'm, I'm presuming from your experience, you've been to the, the city of Goma as well. I was in Goma. Yeah, so yeah. Goma. Which uh, half that town is under lava flow, basically. Twice, yeah. uh, three times now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It happened in 1977. It happened in 2002, and then just happened yeah. again about a year and a half ago. Wow. You've got this city of about a million people yeah. that sits snugly between Lake Kivu, which is this gigantic mm-hmm. lake, yeah. and this towering volcano, this almost perfectly symmetrical, what we call a stratovolcano. And it goes up about 11,000 feet, 
And yeah. inside the crater of this volcano is the world's largest lake of lava. And it is, I don't know, a couple hundred meters across, and it just churns away all the time. But the problem with this particular volcano is that it doesn't it doesn't tend to explode because the mm-hmm. lava is of a consistency where it, it flows very quickly. As a matter of fact, it's some of the fastest flowing lava in the world. But what happens from time to time is you'll get a crack that forms on the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that giant pool of lava is as subject to gravity as the rest of us. And it comes right. flowing from the crack and has nowhere to go but down. And of course, this city is living in the shadow of this volcano. Yeah. And the lava will literally pour into the city. And it has gone so far at one point, I forget which eruption it was, but made it all the way to Lake Kivu. Yeah. Cutting the city in half across the across the airport runway. It shortened the runway. And as you mentioned, this area has seen a lot of internal conflict, a lot of civil war, rebel groups, refugees from the Rwandan genocide back in the 90s. Yeah. It's a troubled part. That 2002 one, there was an Ebola outbreak, like right at the same time, too. Like those poor people. It's a really unfortunate uh, uh, set of circumstances that have targeted this one particular area in eastern Congo. And and to add into all of that turmoil, you've got this natural disaster that's always looming. No matter where you are, you look over and you can see Mm. the mountain. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Looming in the distance. It's got a flat top, steep sides. And it takes the better part of a day to climb it. It's very steep. Yeah. How, how many meters are we? Uh, 11,000 feet, whatever that converts to. And uh, I've spent about a week, just over a week, camped up at the summit. And uh, this is on the second time I went. The first time I went, I just stayed at the summit and didn't go down yeah. inside. Yeah. And, of course, standing so far away, looking at the lava below, knowing that I couldn't get to it, that just yeah. annealed yeah. Or, or, or just tempered in my mind the fact that, okay, I have to come back and go down to the bottom. And so a friend of mine that I work with on a lot of volcano expeditions, um, a friend of mine from New Zealand, uh, was putting together this project and he talked to me and it's like, yeah, I'm going to come, let's do it. And we were working with the United Nations peacekeeping forces that were there mm-hmm. and we, they were supposed to fly us up to the summit. So we had this huge helicopter, we loaded up with t- just so much equipment, food, water, generators, ropes, all of this expedition gear that we needed to to live at the summit of this volcano for at least a week or a week and a half and we have these russian pilots and we're flying up towards the summit and it's cloudy they can't see they don't know where to land i'm in the back it's a huge i'm not sure what it is sikorsky or something it's massive and they call me to the front to the cockpit of the helicopter and i don't speak russian and they don't speak much english and they're trying to use me as a guide to tell them where to land the helicopter on top of this active <laughs> volcano. And the only reason they they were tapping me on the shoulder was because I had been there once 10 years previous. Yeah. So I had the most experience. Yeah. <laughs> and no, that's not that's not the tap on the shoulder you want, right? No, that's... and you don't want to fly in the clouds there no. because the clouds have rocks in them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And we were flying and I was watching the slope of this volcano and we're flying between two, like a valley between these two peaks. And I'm thinking, oh, I can see the headline now, like UN helicopter crashes killing, you know, however many people we had in the chopper. There's about uh, maybe eight or 10 of us. And it was terrifying. And all my compatriots in the back had no idea what was going on. 
<laughs> and we never did find the landing spot. So it turns out there is no landing spot. And it took us several days and several helicopter flights to figure this all out. And we yeah. ended up having to hire about 30 porters, somewhere between 30 and 50 porters, if I recall correctly. This was a few years ago. To carry everything up. And we ended up we ended up hiking because the helicopters just, just wasn't happening. But when you're up at the summit, yeah, we just we just had to do it by by hand, the old fashioned way. But looking down into this crater, it is absolutely massive. It's about four hundred meters deep. So wow. you could take the Empire State Building and, and comfortably fit it inside this crater. Drop it's it in there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. huge. And uh, the lava lake glows so beautifully at night, it lights up the whole sky. And we had to rappel down in multiple stages because your ropes are only so long. So we we rappel down with gas masks, the whole works. And uh, we could only go up to the very edge one at a time because the last pitch was very difficult and very technical. And, uh, and because of because of the altitude, we had some yeah. difficulties because we were using gasoline-powered rope ascenders that think of it like a lawnmower engine with a pulley on it and you can yep. thread your rope through it and then it's got a throttle you start it up and and you use that to to climb up kind of like a batman gadget and at the higher altitudes they don't work so well because the air to gas mixture is not right. is not right so they're underpowered so we only had enough horsepower in these motors to do one person at a time so when it when the weather cleared up, there was a lot of rain. The weather cleared up. I had the opportunity to dash down, get right by the, the the lake of lava. Literally one more step and it would have been a straight drop into this pool of liquid rock. Wow. That, uh, that it was just overwhelming. It's got a very Mordor feel to it. Very Lord of the Rings. So much. <laughs> so much. I, I, one of my other volcano expeditions in the South Pacific in Vanuatu... I actually brought a ring with me and I shot a video of me throwing a ring into, into the lava. Yeah. Just, be, it's on YouTube somewhere. I, I, I threw it up there. Yeah. Just because I could, I, I just got some cheap ring and tossed it in. Yeah. It, was, it was funny. I, and I helped a guy throw his father's ashes into a volcano at one time. Uh, so yeah, once stuff goes in, it's gone forever. That's it. Yeah. So um, amazing though, to, to be down there, to be, I mean, to be that deep into the volcano, um, I mean, how certain, I mean, I guess you were working with volcanologists and stuff as well to make sure this thing isn't really going to blow soon. Right? We had partnered with the uh, with the European Volcanological, not the European Volcanological Institute, the, um, the local Goma Volcano Observatory. And uh, so we were helping them getting access to parts of the volcano that they couldn't access themselves because they don't have the, the skills and expertise and equipment. And in return, they were helping us by giving us advice and giving us access to the volcano permissions to do the things that we were trying to do. Um, but as you know, in that part of the world, it's very difficult to get anything done. Right. Uh, there's so much corruption. Uh, yeah. we were, we were bribed as soon as we landed at the airport. Hmm. Uh, some of the team members, I'll, I'll state, not me. I had my paperwork in order, but some of the other teammates didn't have their paperwork hundred percent right. in order. And they immediately tried to squeeze five, thousand euros out of each one of them and it was just wow. this whole fiasco and problems with the helicopters it was just this just one logistical thing after another people think that these big expeditions okay the hard part is okay getting into the volcano yeah right no, but no the hard part is dealing with the the logistics and the paperwork and security we had to have armed guards with machine guns and just mm. all of these different steps and and 
okay, the helicopter's not working. Okay, what do we do now? We have to find another way. And it's just, it's just, it's completely all about troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. It's all about troubleshooting and finding ways to get around your problems because yeah. you're going to get problems thrown at you left, right, and center, whether it's uh, security, whether it's weather, whatever it is. And there's actually two volcanoes there in Faranga National Park. There's mm-hmm. Niragongo, which is the one we've been talking about. Yeah. And there's another one called Niamurigira. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, at the very end of the expedition, the folks from the UN reached out to us and said, hey, we know we couldn't help you guys get to the top of Niragongo, but we can easily fly you over to Niamurigira. And oh, nobody cool. goes there. It is, oh, it is very infrequently visited because it's in the middle of rebel-controlled territory. So it's very dangerous to get to. Oh, amazing. So we flew in one of their helicopters, this time with a South African crew, smaller helicopter, faster, a little more nimble. Yeah. And we were able to fly out there. And uh, I was able to document a second lake of lava inside this volcano. And it just so happens that uh, some of our findings were just released in a scientific paper by a volcanologist right. studying lakes of lava. We were there at a very uh, important time in the in the evolution of this volcano. But flying over this rebel-controlled territory, coming back yeah. Yeah. from the volcano to Goma, the yeah. pilots gave us two choices. Yeah. They said, because of all the rebels, they like to shoot at the UN helicopters. You've got two choices. We can either fly high out of the range of the bullets, or we can fly low and fast. So, of course, we flew low and, low and fast. Low and, fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're just over the treetops going at full speed. And you can see the campfires of all of these these rebel groups. M23 Rebel, I think that's the name of the yeah, rebel group yeah. there. That sounds and right. uh, I don't know if we were shot at. I'll never know. But we were flying with the doors open because we were filming just mm-hmm. over the treetops. And it was one of the most exhilarating yeah. helicopter rides I've ever had. Yeah. So listen, everything you just described is, sounds like exactly why you do stuff like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's right? it, right? But when I'm when things are easy, yeah. If everything goes right, goes according to plan, yeah. Great, the expedition is a, is a tremendous success. Right. When things go poorly, when there are mm-hmm. problems and compounding mm-hmm. problems on top of other problems, it makes for great stories. Yeah, yeah. Right, and it's all about storytelling. And I do a lot of television. So I'm, I've almost always got a camera with me or I've got a camera crew with me or something. And mm-hmm. so you can document these these moments of insanity and yeah. it becomes part of the, the story of the expedition. And when you have all of these problems and you're still successful, then you've got a tremendous story to tell. You've got a great story, right? So yeah, I, I, am, I embrace the difficulties. In retrospect, I, I can embrace it, but I can think to, back to my mindset at the time. We had, we had one member who was really sick uh, like it was just so many problems. It's just an amazingly beautiful part of the world there. Like the depths of the color green, I've never seen so many like variations just on green. I mean, it's they can get five harvests a year out of the land there because of the volcanoes, right? And, and it's one of the most, I think it's the second most lightning prone place in the world. Uh, no way. Because of this, all the humidity and so much yeah. rain they get there. Yeah, yeah. So a trip like that, like, I mean, just to go back to how you do what you do, like, I mean, what were, like, when, how long in the planning was that? And, you know, what, what did that involve? Uh, that was months of planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to put the timeline into my mind because sometimes you're planning the next expedition while you're on another expedition. Right, for sure. And I remember being on the top of a volcano 
in the South Pacific working on the plans for this Congo expedition. And so, yeah, sometimes it'll be four months of planning, getting the, the permits. Um, yeah, uh, the the Doorway to Hell expedition that I did, which I think we talked about last time that we spoke, was the, the fire pit in Turkmenistan. That expedition took me a year and a half to uh, to secure the permissions and plan everything out. But uh, in, in Congo, things can be, well, both countries are... are notoriously difficult to work in but uh you have to go in thinking that everything is going to go wrong and you have to try and have <laughs> contingencies and backups right. for as yeah. as much as you can simple things like water things that you take for granted here you go to the tap you turn it on but when you're in eastern congo you have to have clean fresh drinking water and you need to get it somehow to the top of that volcano we had 20 people. We hired 20 people just to carry our water supplies up to the top because water is very heavy and it's bulky and you can't carry that much, when you're, especially when you're climbing up to those heights. So just the littlest, stupidest things that we take for granted here, you have to really plan ahead up there. You know, ropes and all of that, that's, that's, that's one side of the whole thing. It's the whole other aspect. We had to bring propane tanks to cook you know, cook the dinner and, and, and such up there and bring all of our food up. You can't go to the grocery store because there's no grocery store nearby. We had one problem. Here's an example. Three members of the team only had short-term visas to be in the country. And so we were literally at the top of the mountain and their visa is about to expire. And we had to send someone to the visa office at the Rwanda border to get the paperwork, bring the paperwork up to the top of the mountain, which was all in French, so I had to help translate. And uh, one of the guys whose visa was about to expire was literally at the bottom of the volcano. So I had to get on the radio to call him to ascend back up so we could fill out his paperwork so that he didn't didn't have problems trying to exit the country in a few days. Like just these stupid little things that uh, just throw a gigantic monkey wrench into all of your plans. So yeah, no, it's, amazing. <laughs> it's not all adventure. Sometimes you have to deal with the mundanity of paperwork. And sometimes that comes up and bites you when you're up on the side of an exposed volcano with lava bubbling in the background. Yeah, no, and there's nothing like and nothing like crossing international borders with a lot of camera gear and stuff too. You know, exactly, always... I've run into a lot of issues with that. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, you've been at this for you know over a couple of decades yeah. now, right? And are very successful. You you got your own television programs and documentary series. And um, uh, what advice do you give to young explorers or people that want to go into sort of adventure exploring and um, and what would what would you suggest to them? It's a different landscape now, certainly, than it was 20, 25 years it ago. It certainly is. When I started, there was no real social media. Mm-hmm. I started chasing storms back in 97, 1998, around there. Right. And so there was no TikTok. There was no Instagram. So in some ways, it's easier now to get sort of the word out of, of what you're doing. Um but in other ways, it's very competitive because you're fighting for views. Because um, really, it, that's what it comes down to, right? right. I mean, here's, here's the way I sort of look at it. And, and it's I do these things because I love to do them. 
I, right. I love the spectacle of nature. I love the sense of awe that I experience when I'm witnessing an iceberg rolling over or a bolt of lightning or an erupting volcano or a tornado. But for other people, it's different things. Some people like to go on canoe expeditions. Some people like to, to go wildlife viewing or doing wildlife photography, mm -hmm. things like that. So just just do the thing that you love to do. Right. And don't do it for anyone else. Do it for you. Mm -hmm. And then all of the whole sharing of that, the promotional side, the social media, all of that, just try not to focus on that. Mm -hmm. Although, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, um, to me, social media is a bit of a necessary evil. I don't particularly like being on social media too much. Right. Um, but it is important. It's there. If you want to be relevant, you have to be on social media. Right. You, you just have to these days mm -hmm. in one way or another. And so if you're genuine about your passion for doing something and then you take that genuine experience and put it out on social media, people that will resonate with people. If you're just going out there to be flashy and I see this all the time, these Instagram influencers, a lot of times when I travel, you go to places and you see folks out there, they're doing nothing but taking selfies. They're not even appreciating the landscapes that they're, that are there and it becomes very superficial. So Try to have as much depth in what you love and make it as sincere as possible and do it for you. Don't do it for them. If you do it for you, they will appreciate it. So, yeah, that's that's sort of my my take on that whole, I don't know, the, the push and pull of that side of, of things. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. Really, I mean, I tell people same thing about podcasts. Like, do a podcast that you would do for nothing, because you may very well be doing it for nothing for a while, uh, and it, the rest will follow if it's what you love, right? I mean, I'm, cu I'm curious. I mean, you travel a lot too. I, it's just that whole selfie thing. I saw a stat recently that was kind of shocking, and it was thirty percent of people polled said they wouldn't go to a travel location that didn't have a good selfie spot, right? Like, you know? Okay, I'm a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've taken a lot of selfies. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right? So I'm guilty of this, and I acknowledge that. But that's not my main goal, right? Mm -hmm. then, you know, that's what we were just talking about. Yeah. And sometimes it's okay to take a selfie. It's okay mm -hmm. sometimes. If you're in an amazing place and you're not with someone, someone who else is going to get the, that memory, right? Photos are for capturing memories, this point in time this place at this point in time. And if there's no one else around to help take your picture, you've got an arm, you've got a camera, you take a selfie. That is totally, totally cool. But at least, at the very least, please, I implore you, take a few moments. Yeah. Just a few moments. Set, the, set your phone down and view these places, not through a lens, not on a screen, with your eyes, just for a few minutes, take a few deep breaths, appreciate, and then feel free, move on, go take your next selfie. And I always try to do that when I'm in some of these places, especially places where I know I've only got a few minutes to stay. I took a helicopter one time to uh, Mount Everest base camp from Kathmandu, which you should never do because mm -hmm. you need to acclimatize. We were literally filming a program about how the human body is affected by high altitude. So we wanted to see what happens to the human body. We had five minutes. That's all we were allowed. The helicopter landed. 
The blades kept turning. We had five minutes to shoot our bits, take a few photos. This was a project with the Weather Network about five years ago. And and then we had to fly out of there. The The pilot had an oxygen tube. We did not. So you're lightheaded. My fingertips were going numb almost immediately. But I still took 30 seconds of that five minutes. I had all this work I had to do in that five-minute span. Very frantic, very frenetic. Take 20 seconds and appreciate the fact that you're right beside the Kumbu Glacier next to the tallest mountain in the world. Drink it in. And then deal with the pilot who's yelling at you because he doesn't want you to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> he was not happy. Yeah. He wanted, no, that's amazing. He wanted us out of there. Yeah. And just sort of describing those sort of mass tourism scenes, it makes you appreciate how lucky we are in Canada and that we have. It is still incredibly easy to get away from everything in this country. And it's probably, I think, our greatest strength as a nation, too. Yeah. I mean, we just have so much real true wilderness Mm -hmm. of course the reason why we have so much of that is because a lot of the 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 area that's not inhabited it's difficult to live there very harsh winters the canadian shield it's hard to build on the shield you've got boreal forest it's dense it's uh you know long cold winters black flies mosquitoes like it's it's hard that's why we're all huddled at the southern border, right? <laughs> 90% of us, whatever it is, we're within 150 kilometers of, of the southern border. And, and there's, you know, there are reasons for that. There's industrial reasons. There's, there's, there's habitation reasons and weather reasons. But you're right. And I implore every single Canadian to get north and to visit some of these wilderness areas. And not just Moraine Lake and Banff, which are fantastic. You know, these places are amazing but they're they're instagrammed out right just just find some place and make it your own there's so there's lots there's room for everyone here to find a place it's just wonderful whether it's in northern bc or yukon or somewhere in in nova scotia along the coastline a little cove somewhere i mean it's just that's one thing i love about canada i've been so fortunate to have been able to visit every single province and territory. And not everyone has that privilege. I understand that it's, it's an absolute privilege because it's very difficult and expensive to get to a lot of places in Canada, particularly Nunavut. Uh, the, the Canadian, I know you're very aware of all of these issues. You were just there not too long ago. But do what you can. Do what you can with the resources that you have. You will really come to appreciate the vastness of this nation and how beautiful it is and just how much of it there is. Well, it's always a pleasure, George. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we look forward to having you back for the next one. Thanks so much. The pleasure's mine. And thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please do us a big, big favor and give us a five-star rating and write a glowing review. Really perjure yourselves wherever you listen. I know that sounds like a bold ask, but the way the podcast algorithm works This is the single best way to make sure these interviews can reach as big an audience as possible. And thank you. So until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th, with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 
the first contender.